If you open that up, Community News and Information, you will find the sermon text. And yes, the entire inside is the text. Um, I do have an outline. I couldn't fit it in here. So we're going to just work through this. If you're a note taker, do your best in the margins. Um, But I'm excited. So we are arriving at something like our 70-something sermon on the Gospel of Luke. We've been journeying verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, and we are arriving at Luke chapter 21, what's often called the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. Um, It is a long sermon of Jesus that has some crazy stuff in it, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, But there's there's a problem. I'm not sure what backgrounds you have come from in the church. We've all come from different stripes, different backgrounds. There are certain Christian groups, good faithful brothers and sisters who love this type of stuff, this type of passage, the book of Revelation, the Olivet Discourse, words of Jesus here, and they're trying to read into these texts things that are happening in our modern world, reading the Jerusalem Times. What's going on in Syria, Iraq, Russia, and China? Is that the beast? And uh, Are we in the end times? Answer, yes. We have been since Jesus' death and resurrection. He said that. So what we're going to do here is touch a controversial text. Um, And the biggest problem I think we're going to have with this is something we've already had. As modern readers and modern preachers, we have tended to focus on and emphasize what this passage is literally not teaching. And in so doing, we have missed what Jesus is teaching. This passage, or sermon, really, of Jesus is largely about the future, the future of the original hearers in the first century, not to you and not to me. This is a passage that Jesus is is speaking, a sermon about something that's going to happen a few decades away from this moment when he's speaking this, and it's a passage about living faithful lives in the present. He's he's teaching his disciples, something's gonna happen in a couple decades, it's gonna be cray. Live faithfully now and know that when this comes, I told you this was gonna come. You can trust my word, it is sure. And similarly to us, this is a sermon, this is a discourse on how we can live faithful lives in the present. Not looking forward to something like they were, but actually looking back on historical events and learning the same lessons. How can we live faithfully? Those historical events that I'm speaking of is the destruction of Jerusalem and the leveling of its temple. The historical context here in in Luke's gospel is the last week of Jesus' life before he dies on the cross what we call Passion Week. That's where we are in Luke's account. And we, uh, scholars believe that this sermon occurred on Tuesday of that week. The big picture, well, I hope to let you and help you see this, is that Jesus is teaching that the old regime, the old order of God relating to his people through temple, through sacrifice, through priests, through mediators between God and us, is passing away, 
It's passing away in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, but specifically and particularly, you're going to see it and know it to be true when the Jewish temple is leveled. The structures and the powers of the priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices are being dethroned as Jesus is being enthroned. This passage is talking about the events of the year 70, 70 AD, or AD 70, whichever you would prefer. So I'm showing my hand from the outset here. Luke 21 is a long sermon of Jesus describing the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, including the utter leveling of the temple. One step further, I do not believe this is talking about Jesus' second coming that is yet future to us. I firmly believe in the second coming of Jesus. We have 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Corinthians 15, the end of the book of Revelation, other passages, the book of Romans speaks to this. The resurrection from the dead, Jesus' second coming, where he is going to return, not as the, the lamb who came to die for us, but as the conquering lion who's gonna make all things right and judge the living and the dead. That is happening. That is not in Luke 21. So I don't want us to confuse this here. Um, now, there is much debate on this chapter, as you could probably tell by my long introduction and walk up to this. Now, while there is much debate on this, I actually think, especially Luke's account of it, is pretty straightforward if we actually stand above the text and see the whole thing, and as good readers, just apply literary exercise, our, our, our reading skills to seeing what's in the text. So look with me at the beginning in verse 5. I just want to look at verses 5 through 7 to set our context. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, that's Jesus said, as for these things you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Scroll down with me now to verse 32. Truly, I, Jesus, say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Jesus, this temple is amazing. You see these stones. I don't even know how they got here. Many scholars believe that the temple in Jerusalem in the first century was numbered among the seven wonders of the world. Immaculate. Jesus, this whole thing's coming down. There's not going to be a stone left upon another. It is going to be utterly destroyed. Jesus, two questions. When's that going to happen? And secondly, what are the signs leading up to that happening? You see, there's two questions. When's the temple falling down, and what are the signs that we'll know those things are about to happen? Jesus answers with Luke 21. And he says, all of what I've just said now is going to happen, and this generation to whom I'm speaking right now will see it. Did you see that in verse 32? And so that, as good readers of the Bible, ought to inform what's going on between what, what, all the, 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 the text. 
The point is that Jesus is preparing his followers in the first century, the original disciples and followers, how they are to live when he's no longer with them on earth. And by connection, Jesus is speaking to us how we are to live faithfully in this present time, in this present age, until we are in glory with him. So, the big red sentence there in your insert, we're finally arriving at that. I think Jesus is calling us to live faithful lives of alertness and confidence in the present age. That's what this is, this is, what this is talking about. It's not asking for us to know what's going on in, in Syria and Russia and China and communism and whether or not we're being invaded in the way, and, and the beast, is he coming out of here and are we taking the mark on the beast? Is the vaccine the mark of the beast? And uh, Oh my, none of that's going on here. Actually, none of that's in scripture. We're not intended to do that. We're intended yet to live now in this present age with alertness, vigilance, readiness, being attentive, and confidence. There's something like 15 imperatives in this passage. 15. Do this and don't do that. Jesus is intending to teach us something on how to live right now with this passage. And so in order to explore this, we're now just arriving at our text, um, we're going to do something we normally don't do here at New City, where we usually read the text up front, I tell you what Jesus is trying to show us, and I have a few points, and then we apply it, and we're all happy. We're going to do a running commentary kind of deal, because this is 38 verses. I'm going to read a paragraph, I'm going to tell you what it means, apply it to your life, and then move on. We're just going to keep reading, I'll talk, read, talk. Um, but I think this text has a lot for us this morning. So, and the good thing about what we have here is uh, the insert, you can read the, the, the words, and then you have a fan with the other one. So, the first thing I want us to see is the destruction of the temple. This is what Jesus is talking about in verses 7 through 19, the destruction of the temple. But it's not just a historical thing. Jesus is teaching us this, to show us our need for discernment. Stuff I've already hit on a little bit. Jesus is confronting our fallen temptation, our fallen temptation to be deceived, to be led astray. He knows that's prone, that we are prone to that. But secondly, he's also pushing against our temptation to try to interpret current events and put them into the text that aren't there. So let's, uh, let's do this, let's stand. We're going to be doing some standing and sitting so we can keep the blood flow moving and not fall asleep. <clears throat> Remember, before I read this, verses 5 through 7. The temple is gorgeous, Jesus. Jesus, it's coming down, no stone left upon another, utterly destroyed. When, what, what's it going to look like? Luke 21. Be, let's begin reading in verse 7 and follow along with me. They asked him, teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. 
And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you will be put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Have a seat. It's hard for us to imagine the importance of the temple to the Jewish people. We have literally nothing like it. It is the center of their lives, the center of their religious life. The temple of God, you can read about it in the Old Testament, Solomon built it, um, it was destroyed and then rebuilt, um, and it's just, it was, it was massive structure. The temple is where God dwelt on earth, kind of a big deal, where God lives, where heaven and earth are touching. The temple is where you go at least once a year to sacrifice so that you can be forgiven. You see what I'm laying down? Without temple, there is no forgiveness. The temple is where you met God's presence. It's where you were forgiven of sin. It's where you were made right, the place of sacrifice. When you weren't in Jerusalem, if you were out scattered, if you were in the, the rural sticks living, when you would pray and think about the Lord, you would face the temple, the direction of the temple. It was everything to you. You made pilgrimage to it at least once a year, sometimes more. It's where you went to remember the exodus and remember all the feasts and, and Sabbaths and celebrations. It was a big deal. We know about the destruction of this temple and the destruction of Jerusalem through the eyewitness account of a Jewish historian writing on behalf of the Romans by the name of Flavius Josephus, more commonly known as Josephus. He lived basically right at the end of Jesus' life, around the year 37, all the way through the year 100 and was literally there and watched the destruction of Jerusalem and saw the temple leveled and he wrote a ton about it. It's called the Jewish War. And I brought a copy of it. I'm gonna read a, like one thing from it. I wish I could read more, but it's pretty grotesque. There's a lot of details that your children will probably, you'll appreciate that I didn't read. But if you want to, you can feel free to check this out. Uh, look at it afterwards. Um, we'll hear a little bit from Josephus later. But the point just so far, is that Jesus is saying, the temple's going to be destroyed. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Because in the days leading up to that destruction, there's going to be false messiahs. Fake Christs come up and say, hey, I am he. The time is here. Don't be led astray by them. Don't follow them. And all you need to do is a cursory study of history to see how many times someone has stood up and said, I am he, and an entire cult is made. It's been happening. It happened. Josephus spoke about the false messiahs leading up to the year 70 that people raised up and said, I am he. Follow me. The time is at hand. This happened leading up to the destruction of the temple. And by connection, don't misinterpret the signs. Remember that Jesus is discussing the destruction of the temple. This is a first century ordeal. 
Don't misinterpret things and try to read everything around you and, and put yourself back in this like Jesus is still speaking to our yet future. In verses 10 and 11, you hear wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, pestilence. All of those things happened in the years and decades leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He wrote about it. You can read it all. What's crazy is how accurate Jesus was. Huh, it's crazy. Jesus was prophetic and he was right. Now, some of these, of course, when I read that, your wars, yeah, nation against nation, those are, those are just general descriptions of all of history to some degree, yes. But in particular, Jesus is speaking to this generation in the first century, you'll see all of this take place. But look at verses 12 and 13. Something else is going to happen. Before that, before the famine, before the pestilence, which happens in 70 AD, I'll tell you about it in a second. Before all that, they will lay hands on you, persecute you. So before 70, before the destruction of the temple, you disciples of mine are going to be persecuted, martyred, put in jail, brought before courts. Jump down a little bit in verse 16. You'll even be delivered up by family members. Luke didn't write just Luke. He wrote the book of Acts before 70 AD. All of this literally took place throughout the book of Acts. Stephen is stoned to death at the feet of Paul. James is beheaded in chapter 12. Peter's in prison. Paul is in prison. Barnabas is in prison. Silas is in prison. Jesus said this. It happened. Temple destroyed in 70. It is a, it's a perfect and an accurate prophetic statement of Jesus. Okay. That's it. Let's move on to the second thing. The fall of the city. The fall of the city. This is verses 20 through 24. And again, this isn't just recounting history. It's for us. Jesus is pointing at our need for courage. Courage. Just like at a wedding, let's not lock our knees, but let's stand up before somebody goes down. Verses 20 through 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written, alas, or woe, to women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. You have a seat. So again, in my estimation, it could not be more clear that this is talking about 70 AD. When Jerusalem is surrounded, everybody there will be Killed by the sword or led captive away as slaves. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This temple's coming down. The city leveled. And as I've mentioned, what is striking is exactly how Jesus' words before that event prophesied and spoke so accurately about what actually happened. So good, so accurate that progressive, more liberal scholars, critical scholars of the New Testament have said, there's no way Jesus said that. It's so right that this had to be written after 70 AD. So Luke, you, you sly dog, you, you're writing after 70 AD, saying Jesus talked about all of this. 
and said that he was saying it before. Or, Jesus is who he says he is. Is the God-man, is the perfect Messiah Christ who came to die for our sins, and he knew what he was talking about and prophesied accurately because he is the God of all time? That's the answer. Josephus details for us the atrocities of what occurred in those days. And if you could see my notes right now, there's a bunch of lines because I have cut out so much goodness here. So I'm just going to bullet point a few things. First, people from the countryside flocked into Jerusalem for protection. The Jewish war was about the year 66 to 70, and it climaxed in the year 70 when the Roman Emperor Titus kicks down the door of Jerusalem and destroys the entire city, tearing the temple down, profaning the temple. People from the countryside flocked into Jerusalem because if you're in Jerusalem, which has walls, you're protected, right? But Jesus, look at verse 21. Let those who are in Judea, that is the region of Jerusalem, get out of Dodge. Flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Those who are in the country, do not enter the city. Get away, or you're dead. History tells us much of the Jewish people went into the city. So what that means is the population of the city swelled. Next, a group of Jewish extremists named zealots defy tyrants. Down with Rome. They were violent extremists who often murdered and killed tax collectors and Roman soldiers. Guerrilla warfare kind of stuff. Popping out of nowhere, shanking a a, a Roman soldier and bouncing. The zealots. The city of Jerusalem was flooded with these zealots. This was their last stand. Let's take down Rome. Didn't go so hot. They're idiots. Josephus tells us that inside the city, once these zealots arrived, there were all kinds of factions that broke out. The extremist zealots, nursing mothers and infants, people all along the spectrum of defy tyrants and kill Rome to like, let's make peace with them and hopefully not die. Josephus says, the noise of those fighting in the city was incessant, both by day and by night, but the lamentation of those who mourned exceeded the sound of clashing metal. I've never been in like old school war with swords and stuff. I can assume it's loud. And he's saying those crying and lamenting louder than the sound of death and swords and fighting. Not a good time. You can read about that in Jewish Wars chapter 5 and 6. Much of this that I'm referencing is in there. People sold both homes and family members to eat. People ate from public sewers. Cattle and bird feces, leather, hay, and even pieces of your clothes to survive. If you did successfully escape the city, the zealots, I forgot to mention this, they were lining themselves around the city so that if you tried to get out, they killed you before you got out. Nobody's escaping this. We fight here. You're a coward if you try to run. If you did successfully get through the zealots, and out into, out of the city, you were surely captured by Romans and crucified in plain sight before the city. Josephus tells us that at a rate of about 500 a day. Titus, the emperor, or I'm sorry, not the emperor, the, the general, Vespasian is the emperor. Titus finally closes in on the city, surrounds it, cuts off water, 
cuts off supplies, makes sure there's no remaining escape routes. I really want to read this quote, but I'm not going to because it's pretty grotesque. And it's not good. Chapters 5 and 6, if anybody wants to to read. It's bad. It's real bad. Verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. Josephus tells us that 100,000 survivors were carried off as slaves. Most of them, especially the males, made their way to the gladiator games. And it's not the fun time that the movie Gladiator portrays. More than one million people died. Almost the entire city, other than those ones taken away from slaves. Exactly what Jesus said in verse 24. Now, Taylor, okay, I'm I'm tracking with you. This all makes sense, but why in the world did you just tell me the application here is to be courageous? Well, look back at verses 12 and following. Remember, before the temple's destroyed, before Jerusalem's destroyed, they're going to persecute you, deliver you over to synagogues. Jump down to verse 16. You'll be delivered up by your parents even. Your brother or your sister, they're going to turn on you. Some of you will be put to death. Some of you are going to die. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But look at verses 18 and 19. Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. The original Greek there, the word for lives, is better. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. Speaking of a spiritual reality, you're holding on to Jesus, enduring in faith, you will gain your souls. Jesus, you're telling me not a hair of my head is going to perish, but you just told me some of us are going to be brutally martyred. All we have to do is read Luke part two, the book of Acts, and see it happen. Stephen's brains are beaten in. James is beheaded. I've mentioned these things already. How are we not going to have a hair of our head perish when you have just given us a pretty bleak reality of what's going to happen? Here's where I'm speaking of Jesus giving the disciples courage. Recall Jesus' words from Luke 12, verse 22. Do not be anxious about anything. If there were something to be anxious about, I think it would be the leveling of an entire city, one million people killed brutally, and 100,000 of us taken off as slaves. No anxiety. He says elsewhere in the book of Luke, do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who in hell can kill both body and soul. Do not be anxious about anything. Brothers and sisters, this is what I'm saying when it comes to courage. Not a hair of your head falls. Not a single bird falls out of the sky dead. Not a single plant can wither over dead without the sovereign permission and the ordaining hand of a good God. None of that happens by chance. God is controlling and sovereignly ordering all things that come to pass, including the utter leveling of Jerusalem. Disciples in the first century, new city, today, you, I, myself, we are untouchable until God decides otherwise. 
If you actually believe that, I think that might change the way you viewed life. We had the privilege of spending some time in Louisville with friends this past week, and on the way home, we almost died, truly. Very bad, semis on both sides, someone right in front slamming on the brakes. It was a miracle. The Lord was kind. It was not my time to go home. He is just as good if I would have died that day. God orders all things. We are untouchable, Christian, until God says it's your time to go home. No Roman soldier, no pandemic, no virus, no enemy, no harm can come upon you without God commanding it. Or to quote the hymn, in Christ alone, Jesus commands my destiny. So, take heart. Be courageous. Does your life look like it has that kind of confidence and courage? I'm not talking about being stupid. I'm not talking about being unwise, living foolishly. But you are truly untouchable until God says otherwise. Be confident. Be courageous. Now, for the controversial part. Just a couple more minutes here. Verses 25 through 33, this section is the one that is now argued that somehow Jesus switches to speaking about his second coming. Now, while Mark and and Matthew may have a little bit more textual clues on moving in that direction and speaking both of AD 70 and of the second coming, Luke doesn't seem to do that. Luke is doing something else here. So remember, the original question to Jesus is, when's the temple going to be torn down? Jesus answered that when Rome comes and surrounds the city, kills everybody, and takes off the survivors to slavery. And what will be the signs when that is about to happen? Now he's going to answer that. So, verses 25 through 33, kind of somewhat titled The Coming of the Son of Man, is speaking of the sovereignty of God and the certainty of his purposes. The power, the authority of Jesus. So, One, uh, uh, actually two more times, but let's stand for 25 through 33. Is this all making sense? Are we tracking with this? Now let's get weird. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, in the earth, distress of nations, in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You may be seated. The certainty of Jesus' prophecy here, the sureness with which he is speaking, my words will not pass away. This is very important. Uh, There's a a statement by a theologian who specializes on this text, and he says this. This This is huge. Remember, Jesus is speaking to a people saturated by Old Testament language, concepts, and imagery. 
from the earliest days of their lives, they memorized and were taught the Old Testament. Thus, when Jesus spoke to them of things to come, he used prophetic vocabulary of the Old Testament, which they would have instantly recognized. That makes sense? What Jesus is doing here is a very normal Old Testament thing. That is, he's describing big events on earth, and to do so, he's using heavenly, what we might call apocalyptic, crazy language. Crazy to us, not crazy to them. They grew up hearing this. Let me show you. Jot jot these down. I'm just going to read them. We're going to move quick. Isaiah 13, 9 and 10. This is a prophecy about Babylon, an earthly kingdom called Babylon who took some of the Jews in 586 into captivity. How are they going to be judged, God? How is Babylon going to fall? Let me tell you. The day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, the word used in Luke 21, and to destroy its enemies from it. Listen to this. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Okay, that's weird. All Jesus is ta- uh, Isaiah is talking about is when Babylon, as the kingdom, falls. Sun, dark, moon not giving light, heavens falling from the sky. Let me give you another one. Isaiah later speaks in chapter 34, verses 4 and 5, the fall of a group of people named the Edomites. How is God going to judge them? How are they going to be destroyed? All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All the stars will fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. It's a real people, an actual people on earth. God's saying, they're going to fall, they're going to be destroyed, I will judge them, and here's the language I'm using to tell you that's going to happen. Sun, moon, stars, water, the stars falling. One more. We'll give, it, we'll give Ezekiel a chance. What do you got to say? Pharaoh and Egypt raise a lamentation over Egypt and say to him, okay, so talking about Egypt, an earthly empire, verses 7 and 8 of Ezekiel 32. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven I will make dark and put darkness in your land. Then I will make, uh, when I make the land of Egypt desolate. So, my point. Like the Old Testament prophets, Jesus is speaking with language that communicates a large-scale shift in power. Something seismic, you might say, is going to happen on earth, in Jerusalem, military, political catastrophe. And to paint this picture in words that they would have understood, even though it's bizarre to your ears, is to speak of it as heaven falling, waters covering us, the sun and moon being darkened, the heavens being opened, 70 AD. But but Taylor, 27's got you. Mm -mm -mm. Verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming 
in a cloud with power and great glory. Second coming. Gotcha, Taylor. No, no, no. Daniel chapter 7 is a, Jesus referencing Daniel chapter 7. I know this is getting real nerdy here, but I love this. I'm sorry. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. This isn't the first time we've seen this in Luke. As a matter of fact, I should have said this from the outset. This isn't the first time Jesus has spoken judgment over Israel, specifically the, the city of Jerusalem. He did it in Luke 17. And on a handful of occasions, as he's walking through the countryside, headed toward Jerusalem, he has said, woe to this city. Woe to this city, right? How I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her young, but you reject and kill the prophets over and over again. Daniel chapter 7 is where Jesus gets the title, Son of Man. It's his favorite title for himself. Jesus, the Son of Man. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, says that one like a Son of Man is coming with the clouds to the Ancient of Days. Daniel 7 is a prophecy about Jesus, the Son of Man, coming on clouds. But did you hear where he's going? Daniel 7 is a prophecy of Jesus going to heaven, going to the Ancient of Days, going to God, not coming down on the clouds. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. Jesus is coming back. He is returning, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's using the language that they would have known from Daniel chapter 7. Oh, you're the son of man. Well, I remember Daniel 7. I memorized it growing up. Daniel 7, son of man coming on the clouds. He's going to heaven. He's coming before the ancient of days, and God, the ancient of days, is giving the son of man vindication, authority, power, glory. You're the man. He's come to God. So, Jesus is then going on to talk about the parable of the fig tree. Just know that when you see the leaves and the figs, uh, just like you know that summer's almost here, when you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, you know that he's being vindicated and receiving glory, and the old regime is falling. That is, when you see Jesus ascend, Acts chapter 1, the Son of Man went on the clouds to the Ancient of Days to receive his power, to receive his glory, to receive all authority in heaven and earth. When you see that, know that this is near. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of his Father. He is the Son of Man who has ridden, 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 ridden the clouds to the Ancient of Days. He has sat down and he is on the throne. There is a real sense in which the life, death, and resurrection, and then his ascension teaches you this. He's the king. But there's a real sense in which your eyes are going to see the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem and know for sure. Jesus is saying that the, the city and the temple that killed him is falling. And that Jesus and his authority will be vindicated when you see all of this. The structures and the Jewish leaders and the systems that murdered him will fall. And so when you see Jerusalem, when you see the temple fall, know that Jesus is in heaven having received his kingdom from the Father and he has all authority and all power. He spoke truth and, and knew what he was saying. Believe him, turn to him. So, last point and much more brief. Life in the present. This is the last paragraph for us. Verses 34 through 38. I'm just going to make a couple comments and close us. Let's stand one more time. Why not? I'm already sweating. Let's just, just finish it off. 
Thanks for your patience. This has been a long text. I hope this has been helpful. But now let's see. So what? How do we live? What's the point? Verse 34, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. That day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. You may be seated. So Jesus is saying, now here's how we do life. Alertness, sobriety, free from worldly cares. Negatively put, don't be weighed down. Don't, it's, a, it's a word with physical weariness. Don't be weighed down. With what? Dissipation, drunkenness, cares of this life. Dissipation and drunkenness are related words. Dissipation speaks of consuming things in excess. Most of the time this word is used in, in the scriptures and outside of the scriptures, it has to do with drinking too much. Wine and strong drink. Drinking parties, overdoing it. We might say binge drinking, doing a bender. No, don't. Do not live in dissipation. Do not be weighed down. That is a weight on you. That's not fun. That's not a good time. That's not party mode. That's actually a weight on you that's hurting you. It could apply to more than just drink, though. Video games, technology, food. Don't be weighed down with dissipation, consuming things in excess. Why? Because it makes you love the things of this world too much and miss the true story of the whole world and where history is going. Secondly, drunkenness. Well, this is closely related, as I've mentioned, but it often speaks of more than just drinking too much at one time, more than just overdoing it and being in excess. It's a lifestyle of drinking, what we might call in our day and age a drunkard, a drunk. Do not be weighed down with dissipation or drunkenness, free from the cares of life. The point is to be clear-headed and focused because if what Jesus is saying and if the Bible is true, that changes everything. Be alert, be awake, be ready. Positively put, though, the exhortation for us is to stay awake in verse 36, praying to be vigilant, ready and focused that the kingdom that is already broken in in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension and will be fully and finally realized yet future in glory. In the in-between, be ready for that day. Be living for that moment. Be living for that place. Yes, New City, be good citizens. We're called to be good citizens of the U.S. or good citizens of this world. But remember, we're actually primarily citizens of a different place. It's challenging. It's how too, far too often we get very comfortable here. That's the so what. That's the application of this. Do our lives reflect what Jesus is talking about? Do our prayer lives represent this type of urgency and alertness? What dominates your thoughts, your desires? Do they reflect that you are alert and ready for glory, your new home, or to be like Jesus who was not of this world. 
What dominates your mind and heart? Is it Jesus Christ and him crucified? Being with him forever who is ascended and reigning on the throne? Or is it dissipation, drunkenness, things of this world, cares of this life? To stretch the passage a little further, what are the functional temples in your life that Jesus is probably wanting to level? The things that you can't do without, whether they're good things, neutral things, or sinful things that you have to have. The thing that while you're at work, you're looking forward to because it's an escape. Jesus wants to take that stone upon another and tear it down. Luke 21 is all about Jesus. I'm going to read a paragraph from a scholar by the name of Sam Storms. He's a pastor, a doctor, scholar, theologian. And commenting on this passage, he has this to say. I can't improve on his words, so I'm going to read it and pray, and then we're going to move to the table. So hear these words from Dr. Sam Storms. This prophecy, therefore, is designed to tell the disciples then and us now that the temple is no longer and never shall be again where you go to meet with God. Amen? The temple is no longer and never shall be again the place of God's dwelling. Amen? The temple is no longer and never shall be again the place where blood sacrifice is offered. The temple is no longer and never shall be the place where forgiveness of sins is found. The temple is no longer and never shall be again the place where you go to hear God's voice and learn about who he is. Last time. All these things now are found in Jesus alone. He is the true temple of God. Jesus is the person and place of sacrifice where forgiveness of sins is found, where God's voice is heard, where God's glory and presence are encountered. So, when the temple in Jerusalem was demolished, leveled, and flattened such that not one stone was left upon another, the people of that day saw that everything the temple symbolized and achieved is now found in King Jesus who rules over the universe. There has been a regime change. The temple is dethroned. Jesus is enthroned. Close quote. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what I just read. Thank you for that reality, that forgiveness of sin. God's voice, God's presence is now found in you, Jesus, in a person, a perfect person, the God-man who lived, died, and rose again for me, for my brothers and sisters here, for my brothers and sisters watching. Jesus, thank you for ascending and riding the clouds to the ancient of days and being vindicated, proving that you are true and you are who you said you are. Help us respond appropriately now by singing and lifting our voice and remind us afresh of the good news as we go to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.